Hey, welcome to the Afikta podcast. My name is Mikey Mhenna. Today we have another episode of Matbakh, our series all about food. This episode is hosted by Salma Sirri, and our special guest is Dr. Minat Allah Adori, whose work focuses on the food that the ancient Egyptians ate. I hope you enjoy this episode. Feel free to head over to afikta.com/support to see how you can join the hundreds of people around the world who make this work possible. Thanks so much. Uh, my name is Salma Sirri. Uh, I'm a researcher, um, food researcher, um, and uh, I usually document and archive and study uh, food and uh, share with uh, on social media on, on Sufra Kitchen. I am delighted to be your host tonight uh, and have this wonderful discussion that I've been really looking forward to with Minatullah Dori El Dori for a while now. Thank you, Salma. I'm very excited about our chat today. Minna is an Egyptologist uh, who is specialized in archaeobotanical analysis. Much of her research has revolved around food and trying to reconstruct how people in the past cooked and ate. She's currently editing the Proceedings of an International Conference on Food in Egypt and Sudan that she organized in 2018 in cooperation with the Institut Français d'Archéologie Orientale and the Polish Center for Mediterranean Archaeology. And I myself have always been going back to Rawi's uh, Cultural Heritage Review uh, magazine uh, that uh, Minna uh, was the, edit the editor uh, guest. Correct me if I'm wrong, Minna? Yes, I was the guest editor of Rawi's food issue. Which was a, it is a beautiful work. Um, really, really rich and um, full of amazing information that really pieces together and create a beautiful narrative and a story of food in Egypt from uh, the early days uh, of that, the ancient civilization. That's what we wanted to do. So I'm glad to hear that. Minna, what is archaeobotany and what does it have to do with food history? Archaeobotany is the science, botany, the science of plants, um, and archaeo is archaeological, something ancient. And so archaeobotany is the study of ancient plant remains that you find on archaeological sites. But plants are organic, they're very fragile. How do they survive? They survive. Um, sometimes somewhere like Egypt and in, in a lot of African countries and in South America, you get a lot of desiccated material because of the environment being incredibly arid. Um, so plant material survives, but generally plant material often gets charred, gets burned. And this is how it survives in archeological contexts. Um, and we do, what archaeobotany is, the, what the archaeobotanical material is, material that survived because people didn't eat it. Waste material, remains of animal fodder, um, um, types of fuel. Um, and a lot of it, become, it gets discarded, and this is how it survives. But we still have a lot of material related to food production, related to cooking, and it tells us a lot about the species that were available to people. And sometimes we're able from the archaeobotanical remains to say how they would have been preparing them and storing them in the past. That's fascinating. Um, the fact that, you know, plants are treated as an artifact. Are they dead? Are they dead cells? Like, are the plants, do you find any that are still 
somehow no, no. no there have been some attempts at trying to recultivate uh, plants that were found desiccated from ancient Egyptian tombs um, with limited success, but usually they are charred, they're burnt, there's nothing really left to, to play with. Now, I have a question. Now, the history of Egypt obviously spans, you know, <laughs> over thousands and millennia. Um, and when we try to describe, you know, an Egyptian diet from that time, I just think of how, you know, the ancient Egyptian history spans over so long to the point that, for example, if you think of Cleopatra's age, which is around 50 BC, Cleopatra's actually closer to us than she, than she was to the very early beginning of the Egyptian civilization, which was probably... 3,000 years before her time, right? Exactly, exactly. We so are in closer the, to Cleopatra, certainly. It's, it's fascinating when you think about it that way. How can we generalize and how can we come up with, you know, an, an, a definition of an ancient Egyptian diet in that case, if it spans over millennia? That's a very good point. Because Egyptian cuisine is not one singular, um, nicely packaged thing. Um, it changes a lot over history. And we've got millennia of change, of fashions, of trade. And also, it is incredibly regional. So what we can, if we have evidence of a particular dish in a particular area, it's only relevant to that one area in that one time. And we can't generalize it and say that everyone in ancient Egypt was eating this throughout the 3,000 years of ancient Egypt. And there was a lot of consistency in ancient Egypt. There was a lot of consistency in the beliefs, in the funerary beliefs. Um, and so some things remained consistent. And I think a lot of the diet would have, the basis of the diet would have remained consistent. Bread and beer, for example, um, would have been the cornerstones in addition to things like lentils and um, onions and lettuce and things like this, I think would have continued throughout ancient Egypt with very, very little change. But certainly it is important to keep in mind that ancient Egypt is not a period of 50 years. And it, we can't make assumptions and overgeneralize about the entirety of Egyptian history just based on some evidence from ancient Egypt. Um, how much of what you uh, use in your research depends on uh, what is visually left on walls or, on, you know, designs on artifacts? Uh, how much of that do you rely on? We rely on it a lot, but they're all little bits of evidence. And each type of evidence, of course, has its uh, strengths and weaknesses, and we use them all. Um, tomb scenes are very interesting because um, they're highly curated and they are meant to accompany the deceased in the afterlife to ensure that they have food in the afterlife. So it wasn't um, necessarily incredibly detailed. So when they show scenes of food production, like beer production or wine production, they don't necessarily show all the steps. And it's not meant to be a recipe. They were never meant to be seen mm -hmm. by, by the living. It was meant to be 
you bury someone, you seal the tomb and halas, you never go back there. I don't think they would have expected that there would come uh, people thousands of years later uh, and dig them out. Um, so we do rely a lot on what they offer. And we've certainly learned a lot about bread production, beer production, wine production, and preparation of poultry, for example, not poultry, um, but ducks and geese, not chicken. That's important to remember. Um, mm from ancient Egyptian tomb scenes, um, but they were not instructions on how to prepare something. And the offering scenes, we also get these scenes where you have the deceased and his wife would be seated in front of a big pile of fruits and vegetables and some bread and, and drinks, maybe beer and, uh, and wine. And these also show us a lot about what people would have eaten but it's again a very curated selection of food and a lot of things that they would have been eating regularly were not never appeared on on tomb scenes at least not that we're able to identify like lentils for example which we have a lot of archaeobotanical evidence for lentils we know that people were eating lentils a lot of lentils but we never see them on uh, on tomb scenes so each type of evidence gives us little snippets and when we put them together we try to form as complete a picture as we can of ancient Egyptian diet. That's amazing. Um, were any of these foods, like you said, the pile of, you know, the, the, the pile of bowls of fruits and, and whatnot, uh, or bounties and, offer, and offerings and all that, uh, that were depicted on these uh, visuals, on these walls, for instance, were these meant to be just purely aesthetic and um, descriptive? Or did they have any symbolic meanings for certain, you know, food items or fruits and vegetables and plants? We don't know why certain fruits and vegetables made it into the tomb scenes. We don't know if it was a matter of personal decision. The deceased would say, ah, you know, they'd open up a catalog and, and look at all the designs and say, I want these fruits and these vegetables, or it was someone's personal favorites. I don't think that, we don't know if people really had a choice in what, in what they were um, including in tomb scenes. Some foods may have had um, some kind of ritual connotations or religious connotations, but very often when we don't understand something, we just say it's a ritual. And we Egyptologists often call things um, ritualistic, even though they're just a random choice that we don't understand. So things like um, mandrake fruit, um, had different sexual connotations. Um, the lotus flower had connotations with resurrection and coming alive again, as well as um, fertility and uh, sexual connotations. Um, probably what else? The foreleg of a, of a cow was also, you, you often see like a, a leg of a cow in, yeah. uh, in yeah. tomb scenes. This was, um, a very, a very important um, visual uh, representation of, of an offering as well that you get a lot of in ancient Egypt. So we do have some things that we think um, symbolized something more than just nutrition. Yeah, I mean, we have this picture in front of us. Um, where was that? Because I, I see such images a lot and I don't know if whether they were just like all over all the walls and all the tombs or are they in specific locations just for specific people or a certain hierarchy 
were these kings or who or priests? <laughs> who are these? <laughs> so these beautiful, beautiful scenes um, that are very, very nicely colored and they're just painted, they're not carved. They all come from the Theban necropolis, from the west bank of Luxor, where the nobility in the new kingdom, um, so about 3,500 years ago-ish, um, where the nobility were buried. And a lot of them were affiliated with the court, so you had um, someone who was an overseer of the, of the king's um, uh, fields, uh, someone was a was a scribe, uh, someone was a military general, they all had, they were all high-ranking officials, and they're just, they're stunning. And we're very lucky because a lot of these scenes were drawn in the 19th century by early Egyptologists, beautifully drawn, beautifully replicated, and we have access to them. Um, because, of course, you can't, um, you can't just go into a tomb whenever you want to see something. It's nice to have these images available to us in such high quality and with these beautiful colors. So this is from the tomb of Nacht. Um, he was um, an official in the in the New Kingdom in Thebes. And you see him sitting with his, with his wife behind him and they've got all the offerings, they've got the lotus and everything else. So what was the poor man's diet then? Bread, lentils, cheese, um, beer was incredibly nutritious, really, really thick, not just like the beer that we have today that is just watered down. Um, think of what a traditional peasant diet would have been in Egypt 100, 200 years ago. And I think it would have been very much the same. Um, Ducks and geese would have probably been available for special occasions. Uh, pigeons and quails as well would have been available for special occasions. Beef was, would have been very, very, very special. Um, pigs were more common um, and you get people, people ate a lot of pigs and of course, nilotic fish. People would have had fairly easy access to nilotic fish. So it is a very, um, varied diet with chait melon as well, etta, which we still eat mm. now in Egypt, but is, is dying out. So people would have had a lot of vegetables and a lot of um, um, fruit as well. What about agriculture? I mean, agriculture advancement and its technology, as I'm sure uh, many of us know, had a crucial part to play in shaping really every civilization not just the Egyptian uh, one. And it had a lot of consequences and later changes to the diet. Um, what did you find drastically changed with it? Uh, certain inventions, tools, specific methods? Um, so in the New Kingdom, about 3,000-ish, 3,500 years ago, um, uh, the, the Shadouf was introduced. And this helped... Um, cultivation to develop and we were able to grow a few more crops than were available before thanks to the Shadouf. Um, but throughout ancient Egypt, there were very little drastic developments in agricultural technologies. 
It wasn't until, so there's the introduction of the Shaduf in the New Kingdom, and then in the Greco-Roman period, this is when you had major agricultural developments and land reclamation and um, new um, methods of um, uh, digging canals and new canals being dug across the country that really changed uh, the agricultural system. Um, but throughout ancient Egypt itself, it was Shaduf probably the biggest change because people were reliant on the flooding of the Nile. And we were very lucky because we got this annual flood with very, very rich fertilizing uh, soil that would cover um, the banks of the Nile. And then afterwards, people would be able to cultivate without much effort and much labor needed to uh, prepare the land for cultivation. So I've been taking uh, taking a, a few um, uh, looks at the images, uh, some of the images that you've been sharing on Instagram, and there's a lot of you know mentions to fruits and vegetables and certain dishes with certain fruits. It seems like there are certain ones that keep popping and and that might not have that we don't necessarily know now? Are, is there such um, plants that were, that were once there but are not uh, available to us anymore? Um, there are things that are still, that are dying out. Things like sycamore figs, for example, are dying out. Um, Nab, Zizifus spina Christi is, um, is, are dying out. Um, but I can't think of anything specific that has completely died out and is no longer available. Tiger nuts um, are also dying out and are becoming very, very difficult to find. What are tiger nuts called in Arabic? Hablaziz. Oh, okay. So these are cousins of papyrus. They're little tubers that we found a lot of in ancient Egyptian tombs and one of the earliest things we can refer to, that we can maybe call a, a recipe uh, from ancient Egypt was a recipe of tiger nuts made with dates and honey, sort of like a cake almost. Was it like crushed, like into a? Yes, a it was crushed. Baked? It was crushed. The tiger nuts were uh, ground into powder mm. or flour, and then they were mixed with fat and the dates and the honey. Amazing. I'm going to move on to uh, fava beans. So we've asked you to share with us one single ingredient um, and talk to us more about it. And you chose fava beans. Why did you? When I, when I went to do my master's in England, I packed a full pot with me, the special fava bean pot where we use uh, to stew the, the fava beans overnight. And I took the little hot plate with me. And every time I had, a few months before I traveled, every time I had someone going back to England, I'd give them a couple of kilos of fava beans because I couldn't dream of being stuck anywhere without my fava beans. And I would always make them and I'd freeze them and I would have fava beans in England um, whenever I wanted. And so for me, it's a very important dish that I actually do. Uh, and I can, and I do eat it every single day. I never have a problem. I never get tired of it. Um, but it's very interesting because of its history in Egypt, because there is an assumption, an assumption that I also once held, that the ancient Egyptians ate fava beans. And the fava beans have been here since time immemorial. And I can't remember why, but a few years ago, I decided to check um, 
Ah, yes, I remember now. I wanted to find out when and how fava beans became a staple. I was I wanted to understand how they became a staple. Um, and so I started looking at all the examples of archaeobotanical finds of fava beans from archaeological sites across Egyptian history. And I found that the material that we have from ancient Egyptian archaeological sites is next to nothing. We only have about five or six arch Egyptian archaeological, ancient Egyptian archaeological sites with remains of fava beans. And when I started looking at each individual site and reading the report, the original reports of the archaeobotanists or the archaeologists who were excavating it and how they identified the grains, I started thinking that they were probably modern contaminations. For example, there's one, um, um, one or two, one or two fava. I'm not going to, uh, you know, rewrite history based on one or two fava uh, beans, um, but there are a couple of fava beans um, that were found in um, a, a, a causeway related to a temple a, a, in in uh, in Giza, not in Giza, in Abu Sir, and. There were fava beans in the causeway, so I'll ask myself, what were the processes or activities that happened that resulted in fava beans being on the causeway where they would celebrate the cult of the dead king? Why would there be fava beans in there? And I came to the conclusion that it's probably a modern contamination from the workmen that were excavating the site, because very often we eat fava beans for second breakfast on archaeological sites and things fall. And things get, um, you know, litter the site. It does happen. And when I looked at every single example of fava beans from ancient Egypt, every single one, with the exception of one, um, is very uh, is a very questionable context. Um, a tomb that has been ransacked by looters in the 17th century. Yes, of course, and has fava beans, then it's probably not an ancient Egyptian deposit of fava beans, but probably a modern contamination. And again, you have one or two grains that don't really allow you to say much. But then when you look at starting the Greco-Roman period, there's an explosion in fava beans being found in archaeological sites. Suddenly, they went from a handful of sites with one or two fava beans each to dozens of sites. Sites, maybe dozens is very generous, maybe a dozen sites or a, a few more sites with sometimes up to a hundred fava, fava bean grains discovered. And that allowed me to come to the conclusion that it seems that the ancient Egyptians did not eat fava beans. We don't know whether they had them at all, maybe they never did. Maybe they were cultivated, but people never ate them. Um, I'm fairly certain that they wouldn't have fed them to the animals because we would have had a lot of remains from the animal dung because when animals eat, um, part of whatever they're eating survives under dung and it becomes, um, it's used as fuel and it's burnt and it becomes nicely charred and you get a lot of the material that the animal fodder consisted of. So I don't think that the ancient Egyptians were eating fava beans. Something happened in the Greco-Roman period. I, I can't tell what it is. Um, but led to fava beans becoming immensely popular. And this is probably, I can assume, um, although I'm very, very cautious, cautiously assuming that this may have been the time when they became a staple. And how they became a staple, I, I'm not really sure. I can't tell, unfortunately. We, we still need more uh, research in understanding that step. A curious case of the fool <laughs> of the fava bean in Egypt. 
Yes. Amazing. Um, you, I'll, I'll definitely come back to you later and get a recipe of, of how to stew the fava beans properly from you. Um, Minna, I want to jump quickly to a fun uh, Q&A. What are you reading or watching right now? Watching Blacklist. Um, reading, I just finished reading, um, I can't even remember it, it wasn't a very good book. It was just fiction. And I'm starting to read a book called Taste, A History of Taste, I think. So I'm, I'm reading that right now. We're about to start reading that. I think of uh, it, it. It crossed. Uh, we crossed paths. I can't remember the author though. But um, yeah, that's definitely. I mean, any book with word history and food is uh, yes is something on my list. <laughs> I'll have to uh, go back and check it. Um, thank you for that. What about your? Let's say someone who you would want to shadow for one day could be from the past or the present perhaps the future future um, minna <laughs> future minna um i would be very cheesy and say i would like to shadow an ancient egyptian for a day so i can come back and tell all egyptologists that a lot of our assumptions about ancient egypt are <laughs> wrong <laughs> i was waiting for that i was waiting i was like i bet she's gonna say an ancient egypt i mean who wouldn't want to of course um as an Egyptologist and probably uh, even just an Egyptian you know to see how their life was like in one day and yeah yes I follow someone cooking yeah for sure a baker a good baker what about your midnight food choice a guilty pleasure crisps crisps but I have no guilt it's crisps. just pleasure Chris chips. as in the, 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 oh, okay, the British chips. <laughs> so British, British, uh, British crisps, yes. Nice. A salty, what flavor then? Salt, just salt. Um, and what about some dish that reminds you most of home, other than fool? Fool doesn't count, though. You already told us the story. Molochea. Yes, absolutely. With good ta'leya and kuzbara and thum. Uh, with pickled onions and rice and then whether uh, um, chicken or rabbit, everything all mixed together. Yes, molokhaya. And a good bed of rice. It makes uh, good winter, winter days. Yeah. Oh, Mwena, thank you so much. This was really, really interesting. And if you'd like to reach out to Minna for any other questions later on, um this is her instagram uh handle eat like an egyptian um minna it's been an unbelievable pleasure hosting you and having this conversation with you tonight learning so much more about ancient egyptian um foodways um and i'd like to thank you so much and thank our audience for joining us tonight thank you very much salma for uh, moderating and, and arranging um the questions and thank you very much to Afikra and Mikey for inviting me and thank you to everyone who's joined and listened to us chat and thank you for your questions. Please give us any feedback if you have, if you enjoyed the, uh, the tonight's conversation and have any, any suggestions. Um, 
And uh, because Afikra is powered by you and powered by all the volunteers and the community, um, there are always ways to support. So uh, head over uh, to learn more about uh, ways to support. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Have a great uh, rest of the evening, wherever you are, or morning or day. And um, uh, just keep following us and good night, everyone. Thank you. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you'd like to watch the full uncut version, go to youtube.com slash afikra. There you can see the full video versions of these podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, go to afikra.com where you can learn about our Zoom events, our live events in 30 different chapters around the world, our social media presence, and our podcasts and YouTube stuff. You should know that everything we do is all towards a mission of converting passive interest in the histories and cultures of the Arab world into an active intellectual curiosity. By listening to this, you're a part of that movement, so thank you for being here. If you'd like to support our work, go to afikra.com support and join the hundreds of people around the world who make this work possible. Thanks. Thanks.